Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Celebrations and clashes. Israel and Hamas agree a ceasefire, but tensions remain. Crypto costs. The U.S. Treasury calls for stricter tax rules. And cooking court. The Apple CEO testifying against Epic Games. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, and we begin once again in the Middle East. A fragile peace reigns for the first time in 11 days after a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel that took hold at 2 a.m. local time. The deal was brokered by Egypt and came into effect 14 hours ago. Since May 10th, Israeli airstrikes have killed 243 Palestinians. That's according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. In Israel, militant fire out of Gaza resulted in 12 deaths during the conflict. We're now joined by Hadass Gold and from Jerusalem. And Ben Wiedemann is in Gaza for us. Hadass, I'll come to you first. I mentioned it's a, a fragile truce. Just how fragile is it in light of the conflict you've seen there already today? Well, and very fragile, Julia. In just the last few hours, we understand that there have been clashes at the Al-Aqsa compound. According to uh, one of our colleagues, a CNN producer who was there, they saw Israeli border police firing stun grenades and rubber bullets at Palestinians. The police say that they were responding to a riot by what they say are hundreds of youths. There was a large crowd at the Al-Aqsa compound chanting in support of Gaza. They were waving Palestinian, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad flags. Uh, dozens of border police, we understand, then entered the compound firing stun grenades and rubber bullets and trying to move people and move the crowds and, and clear the crowds out of the site. A police statement telling, saying that a riot broke out after prayers that included stone throwing and the throwing of Molotov cocktail out of, of a Molotov cocktail at the forces. Right now, as far as we understand, things are quiet at the Al-Aqsa compound. This is also known as the Noble Sanctuary uh, to Muslims or to the Temple Mount to Jews. It is a very, very important and holy site for, for these two religions. And this, uh, these clashes at the Al-Aqsa compound are partly what sparked clashes from a few weeks ago, are partly what sparked this latest conflict that just had a ceasefire enacted in the last uh, 14 hours or so because the militants in Gaza said that they started firing rockets towards Israel, towards Jerusalem, as a result of these tensions at the Al-Aqsa compound over police forces clashing with Palestinians there and of over uh, the situation in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood where several Palestinian families still face possible evictions. So it just goes to show you, despite the fact that a ceasefire may have been brokered between Israel and Hamas and the militant factions in Gaza, that the tensions that were partly what sparked this conflict are still very much alive here in Jerusalem. It is still very much what you could even call a tinderbox situation that can easily be set aflame. As of right now, we haven't seen any sort of more action after uh, these most recent clashes. Things are quiet at the Al-Aqsa compound, but it just goes to show how sensitive things still remain remain and how much of a potentially tenuous ceasefire this is. Julia? Yeah, that tinderbox still smoldering, to your point exactly. And Ben, come in here. Clearly in Gaza, it's a case of assessing the damage, but also, as uh, Hadass was saying there, trying to understand what the contours of this ceasefire are and how long it can hold. Well, I think if we look uh, back to the previous four, uh, the previous three wars between Gaza and Israel going back to December 2008, ceasefires were worked out and ceasefires 
uh, held, I think it's important to keep in mind that, and as Hadas rightly pointed out, it was the confrontations in the Al-Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount that sparked or was one of the reasons why Hamas opened fire on Monday before last, uh, beginning this war. Uh, but what has changed, of course, is that uh, it's highly likely that Hamas has probably used up all of its rockets or most of them. And, of course, the Israelis say that they have destroyed 80, per, 80 to 90 percent of Hamas's rocket launching uh, capabilities. Now, here in Gaza, I mean, we're right. This is the Al Jala building, which last Saturday uh, was brought down completely in an Israeli airstrike. And if, of course, this was where the offices of the Associated Press and Al Jazeera were located. And throughout Gaza, there are similar scenes of destruction. Now, today, for the first time, people are walking around. They can go out and they're sightseeing. They're going around to see what perhaps they only saw on television, uh, what has happened uh, to this city. People are taking pictures with their phones uh, or just gawking at, staring at uh, the level of destruction that has happened. But people are out, uh, stores are opening up again, and life, to the extent that you can call it normal here in Gaza, is returning to normal. As far as Hamas is concerned, they say... This was a victory. Keep in mind for Hamas, after four wars with Israel, their attitude is to survive is to triumph. That may not be the attitude of ordinary people here in Gaza who are increasingly getting worried of this cycle of war, then a period of relative calm, then war again, then calm, then war again. And unfortunately, given that the fundamental issues underlying this conflict have not been resolved. It's a military conflict that just finished, and there's no reason to doubt that there will be a next one, another one, in just a few years. Julia? Yeah, you can call it a victory, but those scenes behind you, Ben, say something very different. Hadas Gold, Ben Weedman, thank you so much, you both, for your uh, views on this. Okay, let's move on. And what a week it's been for financial markets too. Bitcoin taking big hits, inflation fears fueling investor fits, Warner Media and Discovery going for streaming merger glitz, and investors loving Oatly's IPO to bits. Yeah, I did my best on that one. Just part of what led the Nasdaq high yesterday by some 1.7%. And futures look set to add to those gains today too. Europe also continuing the momentum, as you can see. We had new Eurozone data showing business activity rising at its fastest pace in three years. Stark contrast to the tone in Asia, where Japanese business activity plunged as COVID lockdowns weigh on growth and data there. The Chinese stocks also, as you can see, losing ground on inflationary fears. Beijing already announcing measures to try and control rising commodity prices this week too. But I think the week does belong to Bitcoin rising from an intraday low of around $30,000. Wednesday still down just for perspective, some 20% on the week and other crypto competitors, Ether 
and XRP on track for weekly losses as well. That's not the only worry today. As I've mentioned, the U.S. Treasury Department now promising to take a closer look at crypto-related tax compliance. This coming just a day after the Chinese government moved to reduce the use of crypto for payments. Sokgen, meanwhile, saying that regulatory pressure will continue. Analysts there echoing JP Morgan's note earlier in the week that gold remains a better portfolio hedge. And Deutsche Bank now saying Bitcoin's value is based on, quote, wishful thinking. Let's get to the drivers. Paula Monica joins us now. I tell you what, Paul, either way, no one's wishing for a bigger tax bill. And that's the message, I think, from the U.S. Treasury overnight. Yeah, I think I think the guidance from uh, the Treasury Department should not come as a big surprise, Julia. Clearly, you can't have it both ways. If cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are really going to be the future of money, what do people have to do when they are cashing in on an investment or if they are paying something using cash and or cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, you have to pay taxes on these transactions. So the uh, Treasury proposal to potentially have this 10,000 or above tax on uh, you know, transfers uh, you know, to companies involving Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, it further legitimizes Bitcoin and all of those cryptocurrencies, which I think is a good thing. Yes, no one likes paying higher taxes, but the uh, you know, Treasury Department is worried about tax evasion and has to crack down on it. And that's not to say that all crypto bulls are out there cheating on their taxes. Of course, that's not the case. But the IRS needs to get its fair share of tax revenue from transactions that are done with Bitcoin, which is increasingly happening in this country and around the world. Yeah, and I agree with your point too, Paul. If you're paying taxes on capital gains that have accrued as a result of your crypto trading or we're talking more regulation potentially in the future too. It all helps to legitimize a growing sector and nascent technology in the sector as well and provides greater legitimacy, particularly for institutional investors too. So I couldn't agree more with that point. But oh boy, has it been a volatile week. Is it over? Have we consolidated and do we rise from here? Paul, what do you think? Yeah, that, I, I'm not sure it's over yet. It looked like at last check that Bitcoin, Ether, a couple of the other major cryptocurrencies, they were down this morning on this uh, Treasury Department news. And I think that clearly there are still a lot of jitters about what's happening in the broader cryptocurrency market, particularly with regards to Elon Musk. He loves Bitcoin. He doesn't love Bitcoin. He loves Dogecoin. What's, what's going on? A lot of people I talk to, uh, you know, they, they wish that Elon would just be quiet and put his phone away and stop tweeting about crypto and maybe focus on, you know, getting more Model S's to, uh, you know, showrooms and uh, consumers and, uh, you know, not as much about what's happening with uh, Bitcoin prices. Probability of that, Paul? Zero. <laughs> yes. Elon's going to be Elon. Anything above zero there. there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good luck with that. Yep. <laughs> Moving on. Having said that, crypto is bigger than one man and Bitcoin is bigger than one man. But oh boy, he is a force right now, for better or worse. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. OK, let's move on. WeWork's woes just keep coming with a quarterly loss of over $2 billion and a CEO who insulted stay-at-home workers. Anna Stewart joins me from a pretty wet and windy WeWork in London. But you still look fabulous, Anna. Talk me through Talk me through these earnings. Revenues halved from a year ago, I believe, 
And this is a very different company to what it was, let's be yeah. clear. Well, it's certainly slimmed down, but a quarterly loss of over $2 billion <laughs> paints a pretty miserable picture, doesn't it? Even more miserable than this weather, I'd say. Now, some of this, of course, people still working from home, not going into an office, let alone a WeWork, uh, but also some big one-off costs in this earnings report. There was a huge settlement with the ousted co-founder, Adam Newman. Also, they have exited some of their less profitable leases. And that was part of the problem for the pandemic. This is a company that rented long and subleased short and it left it hugely exposed. Now, it is slimmed down. It's under new leadership. It is planning to IPO once again, this time virus back merger later this year. And Julia, this company now valued at $9 billion was, of course, valued at $47 billion just a few years ago in 2019. Yeah, how the world changes. I'm trying to remember what he called it. A capitalist kibbutz. I'm not sure he'll ever get over that because it's the first thing I think of whenever I see the, the, the name WeWalk. But they have obviously pulled out of some ventures like the dog walking app and the wave pool maker. So, wow. Back to real estate, which is a fortunate thing. What's quite interesting about this, and we can talk about future IPO prospects when they want to come back to, uh, to list on a market, but were some comments that the CEO made recently. And he said, and of course, it favours uh, his business himself, but he said, um, people are going to come back to offices. They will. Because if people decide to do flexi time or if they decide to stay at home, they're going to be seen as slackers. What do we think of that, Anna? that touched a nerve, didn't it, Julia? And also unleashed quite a backlash on social media and plenty of comical responses, one of which we can show you, actually. Our producer found a tweet from one lady, Amy B, saying, I wonder why the CEO of a company that rents office space would say this. But I have to say, he's not alone. We also had the CEO of JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon. He said, particularly for younger people who, and I quote, want to hustle, will want to get back to the office. Now, there's so many divides here when it comes to how productive people are working from home or in the office. So many studies out there. The divide really falls on demographic lines, age groups, also sectors, also income, also whether you live in a city or somewhere remote, and also, frankly, just preference. But this is where WeWork really wants to capitalize on the recovery. Lots of businesses just not sure what the future holds in terms of the pandemic and vaccination rates what their employees will want to do. And they want to provide the flexible working solution for people. So they see themselves very much in terms of how Zoom and video chat apps were the winner of the pandemic. They see themselves as a potential winner of the recovery. But that is certainly their sale pitch, not mine. Julia? <laughs> yeah, but short-term leases versus longer-term do make sense to me. So we'll go with it on that one, at least. Capitalist cabots. They've left that behind, though. I should we'll go make with that, that point. And also, Julia, can I go back to the studio yet? <laughs> Get an umbrella, quick. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for braving the British weather. I miss it. No, I don't. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. U.S. President Joe Biden hosting South Korean President Moon Jae-in at the White House today. The allies are expected to discuss, among other things, North Korea's nuclear capabilities, human rights abuses in China and South Korea's need of more COVID-19 vaccines. In a rare and emotional public statement, Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, has berated the BBC. An inquiry found the BBC and journalist Martin Bashir used deceitful methods to secure the iconic 1995 tell-all interview with Princess Diana. But what saddens me most is that if the BBC had properly investigated the complaints and concerns first raised in 1995, my mother would have known that she had been deceived. She was failed not just by a rogue reporter, but by leaders at the BBC who looked the other way 
rather than asking the tough questions. The International Olympic Committee insists the Tokyo Games will be held this summer in a, quote, safe and secure manner. Officials say they're imposing strong health measures to protect the public amid the pandemic. Right now, Japan is in the middle of a COVID surge and has put several regions under a state of emergency. So to come here on First Move, India's COVID crisis is a wake-up call for Africa. So says the head of the continent centers for disease control. And Apple's Tim Cook takes the standing court battles between Apple and Epic Games over the in-app payments. We've got the latest. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. India's confirmed coronavirus cases now topping 26 million, while its death toll approaches 300,000 people. The country's prime minister has been criticised for his response to the crisis and his weeks of silence on the COVID. But today he became emotional as he recognised the scale of the suffering. This virus has snatched away our loved ones. I pay tribute to those who have lost their lives. I offer my condolences to their families. Europe says it will join with African partners, investing $1.2 billion building vaccine production hubs in Africa. The news comes as the European Commission co-hosts a G20 summit on the global response to the pandemic. High on the agenda is scaling vaccine production, and the EU has previously rejected calls from the United States and others for vaccine patent waivers. I'm pleased to say joining us now is John Nkengasong. He's director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. John, fantastic to have you on the show with us. This investment sounds like great news. Your response, please. Absolutely great news. And it's news that we welcome at the level of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the African Union. If you recall, we hosted a very successful meeting on manufacturing vaccines on the continent on uh, precisely April 12 and 13. And that meeting was attended by over 40,000 participants for two days. And we launched a partnership called Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing, which was announced by the chair of the African Union, President uh, Felix Tshisekedi. So we are very pleased and encouraged to hear the Europeans rally behind this partnership uh, to begin to enhance our ability on the continent uh, to manufacture vaccines. This is a right step in the right direction. It goes a long way to guarantee the health security of the continent and the health security of the world as a, at large. But the truth is it's about future vaccines and future vaccine delivery, surely. It doesn't help with the current COVID crisis because this is going to take time. No, absolutely. But we must welcome and celebrate all good uh, news during these unprecedented times. Uh, I have just been attending the the Global Health Summit in Rome, and I'm also very encouraged. And I need to congratulate all countries that have pledged to redistribute additional doses of vaccines that are in their keeping. I think country after country are now pledging to redistribute vaccines uh, uh, to more uh, um, limited resource countries like Africa. So we are very, very encouraged. We welcome the news for to partner with us to expand and enhance our vaccine production capabilities. We welcome the news 
uh, with the good intentions to redistribute vaccines there. That is what we should do so that we can achieve collective immunization. That is the only way to eliminate this pandemic from uh, anywhere in the world. I noticed that the EU has also pledged to supply 1.3 billion vaccines to, to low and middle income countries. That's the news today as well. To your point, all of these things are incredibly helpful. But John, you've pushed and said, please, we need to see these vaccine waivers, patent waivers, because this will help. Can you tell me what kind of manufacturing capabilities you do have in the country? Let's say that some of these big suppliers, the Pfizer's, Moderna's, did and their governments allowed the, the patent waivers to take place, could you actually begin to produce? Do you have the capabilities, the, the resources yes. to do this? Absolutely, yes. There are at least wow. five countries on the continent that have the capacity and capabilities to produce vaccines and are already producing vaccines, not necessarily COVID uh, vaccines. That includes Senegal at the Pasteur Institute, uh, two factories in South Africa, uh, uh, Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco. So we have those. And we have other countries that already are positioning themselves to, from a political uh, uh, standpoint, like Rwanda. The president of Rwanda has come out very publicly to talk about messenger RNA, and they have their commitment, which is extremely important and valuable. So I think we have uh, a lot of goodwill across the continent. Uh, at least some countries are producing those vaccines already. And below that, there are other levels of countries that are already producing animal vaccines, I mean, and many across across the continent. So it's a question of having the resources, the human resources to do that, the partnerships to do that, and the financial incentives to, to do that. So I think the news emerging from the Global Health Summit is uh, must be welcome and must be celebrated. You know, it's quite interesting. You just mentioned some critical factors there, whether it's the political will, the financial will, the labour resources. How confident are you that all of these things can be aligned in order to allow these critical vaccines to be made? Because I mentioned there the EU is cautious about allowing these patent waivers, even if the United States is pushing for it. I think the EU uh, needs to be on the right side of history. And when the history of this pandemic is written, uh, those who made the right decision, the courageous decisions will be remembered. And I'm sure EU is very, very uh, aware of this and, and uh, the move and the, the gesture that they just made today goes a long way to speak in that direction there. As a continent, we produce only 1% of our vaccines. That is, we import 99% of our vaccines but consume 25% of, of, of all vaccines in the world. There is no people that can guarantee their health security by relying on such architecture. So I think the timing is right, and I believe that Africa as a continent is ready. I mean, as Martin Luther King once said in 1963, the time is always right to do the right thing. And the right thing to do is now is to strengthen and enhance those uh, capabilities there. We as a continent, cannot and will not continue to protect our people if we do not strengthen these capabilities. By strengthening these capabilities, we are directly and directly contributing to the overall global security, health security of, of, of the people in the universe. I agree with that, sir. Talk to me about the current situation, because I think everybody around the world is watching with sympathy, with horror of what India is going through at this moment, and also watching the variant first identified there spread around the world. How worried are you 
And how ready is the continent of Africa to deal with that? No, we are very concerned with what we are seeing in India. And as a matter of fact, on uh, May the 8th, we convened an emergency meeting of all ministers of health under the leadership of the African Union uh, uh, Chair and President, President Felix uh, Tshisekedi, where we look at what is going on in India and we said that our systems, healthcare systems, mirror so much what is going on in India. But above all, India produces vaccines and other uh, health commodities than the continent of Africa. If what is going on in India can actually, in terms of the, the pandemic, the size of the pandemic can actually uh, uh, be overwhelming, then it can be catastrophic on the continent. So the outcome of that meeting was threefold. One, we agreed on an adapted strategy that will be based on enhanced prevention, enhanced uh, monitoring and enhanced treatment, where we say to ourselves that in addition to vaccines, which of course are slowly being introduced on the continent, we must privilege the, the, the introduction and the maintenance of public good public health measures. Second is really monitoring for these variants, the variants that continue to emerge. You mentioned the, 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 the B617 variant, which uh, originally was recognized in India, but is now uh, has been identified in six African countries there. Mm in addition to the variant that was originally identified in South Africa and the British variant. So these variants will continue to emerge. The only way to prevent these variants from emerging is to vaccinate at speed and vaccinate at scale. If we do that, then of course we blunt the spread of the virus and limit and restrict the ability for the virus to mutate and create variants there. So the continent has rallied on, agreed on an adapter strategy we're now looking for right partnerships to actually implement this strategy. And that's why what is happening today at the Global Health Security Summit is extremely important. The pledges of the risk distribution of doses will fit into our strategy of enhanced prevention, okay, which is underpinned by the ability to scale up public health measures, but also scale up vaccination. The, the vaccine manufacturing is also going to be critical in a new and adapted strategy because we truly don't know the duration of the immunity, even if we vaccinate at scale. So it may be, and just may be, that we need boosting of this vaccination each year. We just don't know. So that is why it's so critical that the continent equip itself with the ability to uh, actually produce vaccines at scale. The other thing is dealing with immediate COVID cases, and that requires testing. And John, I was watching some of your press briefing, not from this week, but, but, but last week, and you were saying that there'd been a significant drop-off in testing. Have you managed to re-accelerate, reignite the scale of testing across the continent too, in order to identify where the virus is spreading? Absolutely. Testing will continue to be the bedrock of our ability to fight this right. virus. And again, last week we saw a 25% drop in testing. So we've launched an appeal to the continent to say, look, the partnership for accelerated COVID testing that we launched last year, that was extremely, extremely successful in boosting the, the ability and the capacity to test. That brought us close to 10 tests per case identified must be maintained. I mean, we are at war with this virus, and the only way to find where this virus is and react is to do more testing. I mean, and that is where we're going to know where the virus is hiding, right. and then 
develop strategies to flush out this virus. So it is an appeal that we launch, and we are supporting countries, member states with uh, antigen tests, which is a simpler test than the molecular test. We continue to scale that up, support member states to do that. But countries must do more at national level so that the testing continues to go up rather than decrease. John, it's great to chat to you, and I'm glad you're there. I feel more comfortable speaking to you. John Nkengasong there, the director of the African Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. So thank you once again. All right, the market thank opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running for the final session of the week. Few and the Wall Street majors are higher for a second straight session. Tame U.S. bond yields and powerful Q1 profits still helping to support prices. That said... Firms continue to warn on supply chain woes that could lead to worsening consumer price inflation. Heavy machinery company Deere saying today that it's in a constant struggle to secure parts and components and it sees no let up in sight. In the meantime, call it a milkless success. Vegan foods firm Oatly feeling its oats rising some 19 percent on its Nasdaq debut Thursday. Shares also adding today to almost 9 percent gains for a $22 share price and a refreshing pause in the crypto wild ride. Bitcoin a touch higher today, as you can see, a mixed day for some of the Wall Street's biggest crypto boosters, Tesla, Square and Coinbase. As you can see, all high. Well, Coinbase has just dipped slightly there. Yes, it's early days in this trading session. In the meantime, the co-founder of the Ethereum network saying that there's probably a crypto bubble going on at the moment. The 27-year-old spoke to Matt Egan just before Wednesday's big sell-off. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, great interview, fascinating conversation. He's only 27. We also have to make that point. But one of the things I loved about what he says is, look, probably valuations are and have moved above and beyond the underlying technology, but that will catch up. And I think that's important. Yeah, Julia, I mean, it, it has been a wild few weeks in the crypto space, even by crypto standards. I mean, just last month, Bitcoin was at almost $65,000. Uh, this week, it collapsed at one point to just $30,000. Uh, Ethereum, the number two crypto space, um, it, it was down 40% at one point on Wednesday. So anyway, who better to talk to um, all of this uh, you know, then then Vitalik Buterin, the guy who actually uh, created, he invented Ethereum. Uh, he put out his white paper back in 2013. So, um, you know, I, I did ask him about whether or not he, he thinks there's a bubble. I was a little surprised by his answer. Uh, I also asked him uh, about what it was like to find out that he had become a crypto billionaire. Here's what he had to say. It was definitely like one of the many signs that I saw around the same time that, you know, crypto isn't just a toy anymore. It's a yeah, significant part of this new world that's being created. Uh, and, you know, that just means that we, you know, we have to level up and we have to like really continue working hard at uh, turning uh, crypto into something that can be really good and valuable for humanity. Let's talk about Elon Musk, because he's mm. able to send out tweets, uh, even just an appearance on SNL, can move mm. entire cryptocurrencies. Uh, what is it, man? <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling you, it's a cryptocurrency you can trade for conventional money. Oh, so it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. <laughs> but, you know, Elon Musk tweeting is something that the crypto space has only been introduced to like, for the first time, like literally, you know, last year and this year. Uh, so, um, you know, I think it's reasonable to expect a bit of craziness, but, uh, oh, I, 
I do think that the markets will learn and, you know, Elon is not going to have, have this influence forever. So are we in a crypto mm. bubble right now? Um, again, I would say yes, but uh, again, that obviously does not come with a prediction of like when the bubble is going to end because that's notoriously hard to predict. So you said in a 2016 interview that part of the reason why you got into crypto was mm -hmm. to screw the big guy. What did you mean by that? The reason why crypto is uh, so interesting is because it allows uh, large groups of people to like cooperate and to do things on the same platform but without there being like one individual or one uh, single company or even one single government kind of in the middle. And, you know, we have basically sort of sleepwalked into a world where Facebook sees all your data, um, Twitter, um, you know, can choose who stays on the platform, who goes off to all of these things. Like I think decentralized systems can potentially present an alternative and that like you don't need to have a kind of one sort of points of control in the middle of this sort of one big guy that has um, outsized power in the whole system. It's still like a foreign language, I know, to some people listening to that. But we've also spoken on the show to one of the other co-founders of the Ethereum network. And, you know, he was saying it's just about cutting out the middleman. I mean, these guys are really focused on finance in particular and cutting out the big banks, allowing people to lend to get insurance products. So this area actually, actually for me is very fascinating. But I did want to comment on your question about being a, a, um, a crypto billionaire. He was completely unfazed by that. He's like, yeah, you know, clearly big gains, big losses. Right, that's right. And then we, we should also note that Ethereum collapsed so much on Wednesday uh, and hasn't rebounded enough. Uh, that he may have actually lost that newfound billionaire status. Uh, Julia, it's just another reminder, as if we needed it, uh, just how volatile this space is. And we know that a lot of retail investors um, have actually just entered this area for the first time in the past few years. And some of them may be taken aback uh, by how much more turbulent it is than the stock market. Yeah. It's so important. And for these guys that are deep within this sector and looking at the underlying technologies, they're less focused on the big oscillations of the, the cryptocurrencies themselves. And they're more focused on the technology beneath and the power that that represents. And there's a message in there somewhere. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. Thank okay. you, Julia. Well done. After the break, the Tesla of tractors, the future of farming. I'm asking these questions. This electric machine promises a hands-free revolution in agriculture. Who knew tractors could be so exciting? That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Imagine a future where robotic tractors roam across the land, harvesting data as well as crops to optimize yields. That first step has already been taken by a startup which is bringing to market the world's first fully electric self-driving tractor. Monarch says this tablet-controlled machine can plough, harvest and mow and runs on a 10 hours, for 10 hours, on one charge. And for every diesel tractor it replaces, that's the equivalent of taking 17 gasoline-powered cars off the road. 
Praveen Penmetsa is the co-founder and CEO of Monarch Tractor, and he joins us now. Praveen, fantastic to have you on the show. I think what's clear, whether you're looking at it or you're understanding just what the capabilities are, it's no ordinary tractor. Talk to us about the combination of new technology, but also the data collection, which is super exciting as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Julia. Yeah, our tractor is all electric, it's automated, and it's smart. And if you look at tractors for the last 100 years, they've all been mechanical tools. The fact that we can not only do it in a sustainable manner with our all-electric technology, but also help automate it, which means increased safety for farmers, which means uh, increased savings for farmers. And then while we are doing this automation on the farm, Julia, we are also collecting data from from our cameras which allows the farmer to see what's happening in the farm, but also for consumers like you and me, that provides us a a digital connection to our food through the cameras on the tractor. So we are quite excited about the combination of these technologies into into a next generation tractor. So you're hoping to have that sort of farm to food analysis and perhaps allow people to track exactly what farm their food came from in the end if you're collecting all this data and, of course, hopefully improving crop yields too along the way. Exactly. And if Mm. the farmer can monetize this story, that's going to be a game changer on the farm economic side of things uh, for them. If they can directly tell their story to the consumer and if we can see what's happening, we will value that food experience a lot more. And also, hopefully, that will put us in touch with our farmers, who are the most important people on the planet, with respect to our food ecosystem. And I think that connection is going to drive sustainability in agriculture and in farming. I know you've been testing this in farms across the United States, but also in India, too. Um, I can't help but think if I were a farmer, I'd be a little bit nervous to have that thing roaming around using sort of autonomous technology, whether it's with livestock around or, or people, perhaps people out in the fields. How are you sort of getting around that nervousness? Because I'm sure it's there, at least initially. Yeah, that's a great question, Julia, and something that a lot of us common people have. But when we talk to farmers who are actually sitting on the tractor Sometimes day and night when they do their operations, it's a very dull, dirty, and very often dangerous job, especially when you're spraying chemicals and things like that onto the food ecosystem. So what is a dull, dirty, dangerous job? You know, the fact that they can get off the tractor is actually much more safer for the farm communities than them being on the tractor. And also keep in mind, we have some great technology now. All of us are now familiar with autonomous car technologies. But think about a slow-moving tractor on a farm doing these kind of operations very deliberately on each and every tree. That is a much safer uh, uh, option for the farmers. So we have actually not seen a lot of resistance from the farmers. And also the tractor drivers are increasingly becoming more and more harder to find. It's a very skilled operator job. And like I said, it's a very dull job. So there's not too many takers for this. So farmers are under a lot of pressure to find these tractor drivers. It's fascinating. The labor concerns is a a point actually I hadn't thought about. The battery charge lasts for 10 hours. I'm assuming that the farms have a a charging point in-house and then it has to be charged for, what, four to five hours? I guess you do that overnight if you can. Exactly. That brings up a great question, Julia, is how is our tractor charged? And electric infrastructure on our farms is something that we all need to invest into more. But as of today, what we have done with our tractor is we tell our farmers, if you have a barn 
And if you run a welder or some mechanical uh, implement there, you can just plug our charger into a tractor into that and charge our tractor in four to five hours. So we have designed our tractor to work with the existing infrastructure. But going into the future, it's something that we should put a lot more electric infrastructure onto farms as much as we think about electric infrastructure for on-road vehicles for our electric cars and trucks. Yeah, because I can see that being a problem, at least initially, until we see greater investment. Um, in terms of starting price, $58,000, I believe, and they're going to be on the market later next year. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, there are other players in this space. They're behind you, but they're coming on board. Bear Flag Robotics, um, Agronutinelli in, in Denmark, John Deere is another one that's working on this. What differentiates you other than being first? Yeah, our big uh, differentiator is the mindset. We see ourselves as a bridge between technology and sustainability. So our tractors and our, technolo- and our technology will always be focused on sustainability and farm economics, Julia. So, for example, that is the reason why our tractor is not only all electric, but it still has a steering wheel and pedals. So what that allows the, the farmers to do is it allows them to use that technology today with their existing implements and their existing workforce. And not only that, the other big differentiator, Julia, is the fact that our tractor is what we call a utility class tractor. It's a 40 to 70 horsepower class tractor, which is found all over the world. The most common tractor sold today, and it's the fastest growing tractor segment in the world. So we are going into a class of tractors that is going to have the maximum impact But more than that, it's a global product. So that's what differentiates us. This is not a product just for California farmers or the U.S. and European farmers. This is a tractor that any farmer around the world can see and can see the tractor on his farm providing value for him. Fascinating. Okay, come back and talk to us when you're ready to launch, please. Praveen Penmetsa there, the (laughs) co-founder and CEO of Monarch Tractor. Great to have you on the show. Thanks Thanks for having me, Julia. Okay, Apple CEO making a court appearance in a U.S. federal court ahead. Why he's defending the App Store in an antitrust trial and why his testimony could set a precedent for future cases. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Apple CEO Tim Cook will defend his company today in a major U.S. antitrust trial. Developer Epic Games has accused Apple of acting like a monopoly, mainly for not allowing alternative payment systems on its app store and charging a 30% on in-app sales. Apple has defended the way it operates and Cook's testimony could set the tone for other antitrust battles in the future. For more, CNN's Claire Sebastian joins me now. The star witness arrives. Claire, he's basically got to defend his business model, defend those fees and say they're essential for the consumer product that we provide. How's he going to do it? Yeah, so Julia, I think it's it's just as important the fact that he's there as much as what he's going to say. This is clearly a case that that is extremely important to Apple going forward. Don't forget, Epic isn't asking for for money; it's asking for injunctive relief, essentially for Apple to change its business model. So, according to the court witness list, Tim Cook is going to discuss Apple's corporate values, Apple's business and operations, the development and launch of the App Store, and the competition faced by Apple. So, we really expect that he'll sort of pull together the arguments that we've heard throughout this three-week court case so far, arguing that Apple. Apple is not a monopoly, that it has a lot of competition when it comes to app distribution in particular, 
gaming, that the money it makes through that 30% commission is put to very good use uh, for things like R&D, tools for app developers, privacy and security. In fact, uh, an Apple spokesperson told CNN Business that they expect he will expand on his personal views when it comes to privacy and security, something he's been a, a very vocal advocate of. So, so really pulling together all the arguments, I, re- I think he's going to focus more on the positives, that sort of explaining how the App Store is a force for good rather than the negatives that we've seen from some of Apple's lawyers, you know, really talking about what Epic did last summer when it, when it, when it put its own payment system into Fortnite and provoked Apple into kicking Fortnite off of the App Store. So, so, you know, a really big moment as we come to the end of this case. Yeah, I was about to say, Claire, how much longer is this going to go on for, do we think? Or is this like the defining moment? This is sort of the, the, the closer for Apple. We expect final arguments to be on Monday. After that, it could take a, a little while to get a verdict. The judge has made it clear that she's very busy. And after that, we'll probably get appeals from whoever loses. So, so we've got a little while <laughs> That's left. That's a good point. Uh, but, 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 but again, yeah, a really big moment here. The one we've been waiting for from Tim Cook. Yeah. Are we there yet? No, in a word. And even when we get there, we won't be there. Yes. Claire Sebastian, okay. thank you so much for that. Have a good weekend. Okay, what better way to end an utterly miserable 14 months in Europe than this? Yes, expect plenty of thrashing and wailing this weekend. The world's biggest, some might say most bizarre, music event returns after last year's cancellation. It is the Eurovision Song Contest live from Rotterdam and it has it all. I'm reliably informed there will be leather trousers, confounding lyrics and one dancer dressed as a middle finger. Now that's entertainment, I guess, for some people, but we do like Eurovision. And finally, Lego is piecing together a new product just in time for Pride Month in June. It's an LGBTQ-themed set called Everyone is Awesome and features 11 figures in colours inspired by the rainbow flag. It comes as the toy industry tries to make children's products more inclusive. And in that vein, I wish my awesome first movers a wonderful weekend. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.